You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. To the choir master of David, the servant of Yahweh. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Yahweh, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Yahweh. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you, with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. Nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen, they are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, remind us of the sinfulness of man. And impress upon us freshly that the only distinction that we, your church, have between us and them is your steadfast covenant love. And assure us that the love of our God is greater than the wickedness of this world. Send your Spirit and teach us these things today. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. The 36th, 6th Psalm is a psalm of stark contrast. Taking us from the depths the dark depths of man's depravity to the bright heights of God's covenant love. Derek Kidner, ever the master of a potent sentence, sums it up well. This this is a psalm of powerful contrast, a glimpse of human wickedness at its most malevolent and divine goodness in its many-sided fullness. Meanwhile, 
The singer is menaced by one and assured of victory by the other. Few psalms cover so great a range in so short a space. The psalm has three parts, verses 1 through 4, reflect on the sinfulness of the wicked. Verses 5 through 9, the uh, steadfast love of Yahweh. And the final portion, the supplication of the upright. The opening section lays before us an anatomy of the sinner. It opens the sinner to us using the scalpel of the word. We, we see him in his depths. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of, of spirit, of joints, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So this opening section, the word lays bare the sinner before us. And before we, we examine it further, Jesus warned us in His words to the Pharisees of what we can expect to discover in, in every chest of every sinful man. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Lay the scalpel to the chest of sinners, and this is what you can expect to find. Death, uncleanness, hypocrisy, lawlessness. And the first thing we learn about the sinner here is who his prophet is. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Now, there are two possible readings here, and you have them both in the ESV. You have a footnote, very likely, that tells you that it could read that transgression speaks to the wicked deep in my heart. And, and still, that doesn't get at the full range, though, of, of the way this can be taken. So, on one side, you have the ESV and the New American Standard that have transgression speaking to the wicked in their heart. And on the other side, you have translations like the New King James or the Christian Standard that have the word coming to David concerning transgression. The, the word either, either coming to David in his heart concerning the wicked and their transgression or the word coming to David concerning the transgression that is in their heart. But the strength of the, the New King James and the Christian Standard really is in this. They translate speaks you have it in the SV as oracle. And that is the sense. There's a prophetic word that's being spoken. The argument would be, is, is transgression speaking and acting like a prophet, or is there this oracle, this word, a prophetic utterance, that David is receiving concerning the transgression of the wicked? So I think it's right to understand there is a kind of prophetic word that's being spoken here. That's the sense. But I think the ESV is correct in that sin is speaking like a prophet to the heart of the wicked. Sin, transgression, iniquity function like a prophet in the heart of the wicked. And I think that's the sense because that is the same thing that's happening in verse 2. He flatters himself. 
There's the speaking that's happening. Or you have it in verse 4. He plots trouble while on his bed. That's telling you something of the prophet that resides in the heart and the results that become of it. But don't imagine with this that cartoonish devil or a cartoonish prophet residing in the heart, enticing the heart. Sin is personified here as a prophet speaking to the heart. But what you're really being told is that the heart speaks to the heart. The heart of the sinner speaks to the sinner. He flatters himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones, along some different lines, but equally applicable here, has asked, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? All of man's misery decisively is rooted not in the serpent speaking to Eve, but in Eve speaking to Eve. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. As you hear that again, can you hear the inner dialogue that's happening? She saw that the tree was good for food. She was telling herself the tree was good for food. Can you not resonate with it? Do you, do you hear the echo of that kind of dialogue in your own soul? Do you recognize that you have that same prophet residing in your heart, speaking sin's promises and sin's lies? And Sin is our creed. Fallen man, sin is our creed. It's our confession. It's our worldview. It's our prophet. Open up the chest of the sinner, and this is what you'll find, a false prophet. The heart is made to run on the fuel of prophecy, on words that are leaned upon as truth. But rejecting God's truth, we've made our own synthetic blends for our hearts to run on. Have truths, perverted truths, corrupted truths. There must be words, but since we'll have none of God's, we make up our own. And what the result of this is, what this means is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's striking in two ways what's being said here. One of them you can see and one of them's more hidden. There's no fear of God before their eyes. You don't have to answer out loud. Just fill in the blank in your mind. The fear of is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. Give yourself a point if you said Lord, the Lord. Give yourself extra credit if you thought all caps Lord or Yahweh, you get bonus points. The Scriptures encourage the saints that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of their covenant Lord, Yahweh, who has redeemed them. But here you're told, That the wicked don't even have something that's more basic and fundamental. They don't fear their creator. They don't fear their God. And then further, the word that you have concerning the saints, that they are to fear Yahweh. The word you have for fear there has the idea of 
awe and reverence. It has the idea of fear. But a stronger word is used here that has the connotations of dread. Craven fear. Trembling. And that's exactly what the sinner should feel as he stands, a child of wrath, as he stands under the wrath of God and judgment of God. He should feel that kind of terror and dread, but we're told that it's completely absent. Why is it so? Because of this prophet that resides in his heart. And here's the message of the prophet of the heart. Here's the message of man to himself. He flatters himself in his own eyes. That his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Romans 1 bridges the first part of verse 1 with that second verse. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Romans 1.18 and following. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God's power and divinity are made known, and they suppress that truth. And then further revelation comes upon top of that, that the wrath of God is against man in that state. And they exchange the glory of God for gods that they make, gods that they are God of. And therefore, they're Lord over the prophets. They choose the prophets. He crafts his own gods. He's God of his gods. He then gets to choose the oracles that his prophets speak. And here's the message he says to himself. My iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The fool says to himself, there is no God. And what that means is, this is hidden. It can't be hated. can't be found out. But here's the holy word of God. Exposing the sinfulness of man. His sin can't be hidden. He's laid bare by the word. His sin will be known. And you can see that with the sinner himself here as the, the Word of God continues to dissect man, this anatomy of the soul. Verse 3, look at his mouth. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and to do good. Just take the first part now. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. Trouble and deceit flow from his mouth. Harmful, hurtful, destructive words and lies. As we look at the anatomy of the sinner, where are these words coming from? We're already told, but... It's, it's subtly just hinted at here, but Jesus makes it plain. He's addressing again, asking the Pharisees, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? How can good come out of your mouth when you are evil? 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth speaks according to that prophet that we harbor within our own hearts and all the lies we're telling ourselves and then the same kind of lies that we're telling ourselves and that are destroying ourselves, we then propagate and tell others. And all this is connected to the hands as well, to the acts that the wicked do. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. If the wicked doesn't even dread God, how can we expect him to have made any progress in the first lesson of wisdom, the fear of the Lord? He may do acts of what we refer to as civic righteousness that are judged good on a certain level and plane. But the indictment of the 14th Psalm in Romans 3 stands, there is none Who does good. The 1689 Confession explains the saying. Works done by unregenerate men. Although for the matter of them. They may be things which God commands. And of good use both to themselves and to others. Yet because. And I'll add my enumeration here. Yet because one. They proceed not from a heart purified by faith. Two, nor are done in a right manner according to the Word of God. Notice the distinction that's made there. They may do the right matter, but the manner. The matter may be what God has said in His Word, but the manner is not according to God's Word. And three, nor to a right end, the glory of God, They are therefore sinful and cannot please God, nor make a man meet to receive grace from God, and yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing to God. So the reason they're not good is they flow from a corrupt heart. One, and they're not according to the manner of the word. They may get the matter right, but the manner is not according to the word. It's according to that prophet that resides in their heart. Because that's the case, it's not done for the ultimate end of the glory of God, but in rebellion against that glory. One is illustrated it this way. Pirates may do good deeds on their pirate vessel for another pirate. But their good deed towards that other pirate is an expression of rebellion against the king. Their very good deeds are expressions of rebellion And not submission. Because of the heart, the wicked, we're told, have ceased to do good. There's no fear of God before their eyes. If there was the fear of God before their eyes, they wouldn't be a lost sinner. But because there's a lost sinner, there's no fear of God. And so long as he remains a lost sinner, everything he does is in unbelief. If he did anything in belief, he wouldn't be an unbeliever. He wouldn't be a lost sinner. He wouldn't be a wicked man. But everything he does is in unbelief. And Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Romans 14 tells us 
that whatever is not done in faith is sin. All that he does is sin. Now look to his head, to his thoughts, verse 4. He plots trouble while on his bed. He meditates on evil. O. Palmer Robertson has said that the first and second psalms are pillar psalms that bring us into the temple of the Psalter. They're introductory psalms. They, they set things for us as we go into the psalms. They are key interpretive psalms for the psalms. And the first psalm opens with this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. He meditates on God's word and his truth, and this leads him in paths of righteousness. But the sinner here, we read, plots trouble while on his bed. Remember, the sinner is going to blind himself to this. Many a time, he doesn't think himself to be plotting trouble when he is plotting trouble. He thinks he's thinking of of things that are good and worthwhile. Every villain, every great villain, has fancied themselves a hero and a savior of the world while plotting trouble. We justify our sin. Now look to his feet, verse 4. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He resolutely determines to walk in this way that's not good. And and with this, you see, you're not looking at his feet so much as you're seeing his intent, his will, his volition. The heart decides as the heart desires. This does not excuse our iniquity. It shows the depths of it. The heart decides as the heart desires. You are perfectly free to choose however you wish. The heart decides as the heart desires. You choose. And that's just the problem. You choose. And who you are is a sinner in bondage to your sins. The free exercise of you means sin. And finally, underlying the intent, you see the disposition of the wicked in verse 4. He does not reject evil. Augustine said that before the fall, man was posse peccare, posse possible, peccare, think peccadillo, sin. Man was able to sin, and posse non peccare, able not to sin. But after the fall, he was non posse non peccare. He was not able not to sin. The only thing he could do was sin. Sinful man does not reject evil, he welcomes her. The door that Adam threw wide open, we have willfully left open ever since. And we cannot will otherwise. The reason we do not reject evil without is because she's taken up residence within. Transgression speaks to a man deep in his heart. 
This is the doctrine of total depravity. Even in Reformed circles, some balk at the term total because it's liable to misunderstanding. It can be mis- mistaken to say we're speaking of utter depravity, that man is as wicked as he could be, and that's not true. I have no hesitancy, though, in using the word total. The wicked have ceased to do good. He does not reject evil, or as Paul, assembling a litany of texts gathered from the Psalms and ending climactically with where our psalm opened, says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If, after consulting this psalm, you want a second opinion... Know that those doctors housed within the hospital of Holy Scripture all concur. Man is totally depraved. Sin has infected every organ. The, is, it's, it's, you see it here. It's his hand, his hands, his head, his heart, his affections, his intellect, his volition. Every part of him, his mouth, his feet, his intent... His disposition, the whole of him, depraved. Is he as wicked as he possibly could be? No. But don't you see from this text that the only reason that man is not as wicked as he can is, is because God is sovereign and restrains the evil and wickedness of men so that it only accomplishes his purposes. The only reason why we are not as wicked as we could be is owing nothing to ourselves but to God's common grace. And following the anatomy of the sinner, and knowing that the next section is meant to be put into contrast with it, and having studied the Psalms as we have, what are you expecting David to put in contrast to the wicked? Now, it's an open book test. We've already read ahead, so you can easily cheat, but... Put all that on pause. Try not to act pious. Really, what are you expecting? There's going to be a contrast. He's talked about the sinfulness of the wicked. He constantly pits the wicked and the righteous against one another throughout the Psalms. Is that not what you're expecting to happen once more? But instead, you don't find him contrasting the wicked and the righteous. You find him contrasting the wicked and the righteous one. And then further, knowing that's the case, okay, he's going to contrast the wicked and the righteous. That being so, what are you, the righteous one, that being so, what are you expecting him to contrast the wicked sinfulness with in relation to God? Well, God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's justice perhaps, but instead, I would argue that the focus is exclusively on the steadfast love of God. And even if you won't agree with my argument, you'll have to admit that it is at least emphatic.
emphatically on the steadfast love of Yahweh. Four things of God are said to be measureless. Your steadfast love, O Yahweh, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountain of God and your judgments are like the great deep. They're inexhaustible. They're infinite. They cannot be measured. The infinity of God is a glorious attribute to study, but you have to come at it indirectly. You have to study every other attribute, and then you come to the recognition of this attribute, because every one of them are measureless, inexhaustible, infinite. But the question is, are we looking at the same attribute spoken of in four ways, or a set of contrasting, distinct attributes? Faithfulness, Steadfast love on one side, judgments, righteousness on the other. Now we have to be careful because all of God's attributes are in perfect harmony and inseparable from one another. Every attribute considered as a noun has every other attribute attached to it as an adjective. His love is a holy, righteous, infinite, immutable love. His wrath is an expression of His grace and mercy towards His saints. You cannot separate these. But here I would say, you have not distinct attributes being considered. You have the same attribute being spoken of in synonymous terms, at least as they're considered. There are two reasons I believe this is so. One... Notice the conclusion David comes to after reflecting on these two pairs. Steadfast love extends to the heavens, faithfulness to the clouds, righteousness like a mountain, judgments like a deep conclusion. Man and beast, you save, O Yahweh. Second, and the one that really clinches the argument for me is verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Righteousness and steadfast love made parallel, synonymous. And David asked that they both continue and he asked that they continue towards the same people, those who know him and the upright of heart. And seeing that that's the case, and the conclusion David comes to, man and beast you save, O Yahweh. To reflecting on that, are you not ready to say with David, how precious is your steadfast love, O God? This is where the fundamental contrast lies, and the saints realize it. The reason why the righteous stand distinct from the wicked isn't owing to anything in themselves. It isn't because the righteous have taken a step. But it's because Yahweh has set apart. The only reason why we stand distinct from sinners is because of the unfailing, immutable, infinite, immeasurable covenant love of our God come to us in 
the new covenant blood of Jesus Christ that makes us new and gives us a new heart. Joshua proclaimed this word to Israel from Yahweh. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor. Your fathers, Terah, Abraham, Nahor, and they, Terah, Abraham, Nahor. Abraham's included in this is what I want you to see. Your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. They served many gods. They were in the cesspool of verses 1 through 4. They had the exact same anatomy of the wicked that's just been put before you. And then God took him and made a covenant with him and promised to him and his offspring, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Moses reminded them, it's not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So the question then in their mind is, okay, so why did God love us and choose us? It doesn't have to do with us. Why? It's because Yahweh loves you. He loves you. Why? Because He loves you. He continues, and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. He's keeping covenant. That's the idea behind the word steadfast love. Covenant love. The oath that He swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. The source of God's covenant love flows from His own depths. This is why it's unfailing. This is why it's steadfast. This is why it's immutable. This is why it's infinite. It's because it's not rooted in you. Praise God, His love is not rooted in you, but in His own depths. Later, Moses would speak in the same way that he did. So previously, Deuteronomy 7, he's speaking of a steadfast love in reference to his redeeming them out of Egypt. Now he's speaking of it in terms of their conquest of Canaan, Deuteronomy 9. And he says, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations... Yahweh your God is driving them out from before you. And that He may confirm the word that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Why will they drive out these nations? They're wicked. It's an act of judgment of God upon them. But the reason why this comes as grace expressed to you is because of His covenant love and faithfulness. If there is to be any contrast between the wicked, there's to be any set apart in distinction from them, the only explanation is the unfailing, merciful, gracious 
covenant love of God. And the result of this covenant love for those He's chosen to pour it out on are salvation, refuge, and life. Verses 6-8. through Man and beast you save, O Yahweh. It's peculiar that beast is in there. My only thought there is that with God's righteousness being compared to a mountain and His judgment like the great deep is, is perhaps in David's mind here as he's drawing on the imagery of the flood. And God's, not His judgment expressed therein, but His covenant faithfulness, saving man and beast. There's salvation, there's refuge. The children of man take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Our God is a rock. He's a shelter. He's a fortress. He's a strong tower. He's a a bulwark. These are all images for refuge, but none of them quite so intimate and warm as that of a mother gathering her chicks for shelter under her wing. Listen to how this tender image is set with others in Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield. You hear His faithfulness, you think His covenant love is a shield and a buckler. But the image that David dwells upon most, as far as what the saints find in the covenant love of God, is not salvation or refuge, but life. It's like feasting in A great house, drinking from this inexhaustible fountain. The reason why there is this feasting and this drinking, he says, is because with God is the fountain of life. And light is a a metaphor that just further unpacks that. In your light do we see light. Listen to the same parallelism parallelism of light and life in Psalm 56, 13. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Or do you remember what was said of our Lord in John 1? In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. See, this is not just life. It's life. It's not simply about quantity. It's about quality. God has life in and of Himself. The attribute we we speak of there is His aseity. He has of Himselfness. He is completely independent. And He's not just independent. He is is inexhaustibly, self-sufficiently so He does not need anything. And the saints feast and drink from this inexhaustible well and storehouse of God. 
the life that the saints feast on is the intimate, covenantal, knowing and living of our triune God in perfect fellowship and love. Remember Jesus in His high priestly prayer explained this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. To know the fountain of all life. The infinite covenant love of God invites us into the infinite. This is the fountain from which all His love flows and it's the ocean into which it dumps. In your light do we see light. Life sweeping us up and bringing us into life. There's a kind of participation in the very life of the Trinity, you almost feel blasphemous to speak of it. And, and there, is, there is a distinction between what we participate in and enjoy, but nonetheless, that is the very thing we get caught up in as God's inter-Trinitarian delight. We drink from the, the river of His delights. We drink from the depth of God's delight in God. And David anchored in this covenant love seeking refuge and salvation and life, cries out to his God and his, his petition is really simple. It's rooted in both of these things and it brings them together. His petition is simply, let your steadfast love continue and let their wickedness cease. That's it. Let your, oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. And then, confident in his reflection, coming to that prayer, confident in his God, is this expression of faith that looks upon the answer to that prayer as though it's already passed. He says, there, the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise which is a beautifully poetic and subtle way to get to the main idea David wants you to have. And that's not, there they lie. What he wants you to recognize is whenever he says that, it means this. Therefore, the steadfast love of God continues. It indeed extends to the heavens, reaches to the clouds, it's like a mighty mountain. It's like the great deeps. The wickedness of the wicked is no match for the steadfast love of our God. You see, that's where he's wanting to take you. Look at how wicked man is and that can make you despondent. It can cause you to despair. But then he says, Look at the steadfast love of God. And he brings them both together in this petition. And by faith, he knows. The steadfast love of God is greater than the sinfulness of the wicked. His love will continue. They will not endure. What a contrast. But if you would see sin at its ugliest... 
and God's covenant love in its brightest glory, look to the cross. And there you will see that our sovereign God used man's greatest act of wickedness. The depravity that resides in every one of our hearts let loose in its full expression. He uses that depth of darkness so that His covenant love might shine in its brightest God used the greatest act of man's wickedness to display the greatest act of his covenant faithfulness. John Piper captures the beauty of this well. The all-important pivot of human history, the worst sin ever committed, served to show the greatest glory of Christ and obtain the sin-conquering gift of God's grace. God did not just overcome evil at the cross. He made evil serve the overcoming of evil. He made evil commit suicide in doing its worst evil. Don't let this contrast cause you to think that there is any contest. Appearances may deceive. We are often deceived as we look out in this world and grow despondent. Don't let appearances deceive you. The moment when the arrogant world thought they had their foot on the neck of God's king, God's king had his foot on the head of the serpent. And he nailed the record of our debts to the cross, paid in blood. And he rose three days later, triumphant over the grave. Man's sin is infinitely heinous because it's against an infinite God. But that is the only regard in which it's infinite. Otherwise, it is impotent. It is measured. It is finite. It will not endure except in its punishment by our holy God. It is pathetically finite in power. But the steadfast love of our covenant Lord extends to the heavens. It reaches to the clouds. It's like a mighty mountain and it's deeper than the depths. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Saints, in the infinite, unfailing, steadfast love of our covenant Lord Jesus Christ. We find salvation. We find refuge. We find life. In the covenant love of God that has found us, we find life. We find God. And if God be for us, who can be against us? The wicked will fall, but the steadfast love of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us when we, your people, look at the wickedness of this world and think it more mighty than your covenant love. Redirect our, help us to see this world in its ugliness fully, seeing it dissected and pulled apart by your word and di diagnosing the disease correctly, seeing it 
in its stark truth and reality, seeing it as worse than what we so often see it is, but then seeing it in contrast as so pathetic and small and impotent in comparison to your love and crying out to you, may we look with the eyes of faith with a kind of confidence and insurance as we, we walk. May, may we have a kind of joy and not an anxiety as we step out into this world. Knowing your love will endure. And sin will one day be no more. Thank you for your covenant love that set us apart. Without which we would be utterly hopeless. But because we know it, Father, may we not walk through this world without hope, but with faith, bright and joyful and singing. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.